Well, hey, welcome to First Church. So glad you guys are here. Hopefully everybody made it here safely. I know the roads were a little nasty last night, but my roads weren't too bad this morning. But glad you guys are here. And we're also glad to have people from our Stone Canyon and Verdigris campuses joining us as well. Hopefully they're staying warm in their location. So if you would, put your hands together and welcome them to church this morning. A few months ago, Allison had me run some errands on a Saturday, and Alex, my son, came up to me, and he goes, hey, Daddy, can I go with you? And I was like, sure, buddy. You know, I cherish those moments, because I know a day is coming when he's probably not going to want to hang out with Dad as much. I was like, yeah, buddy, if you want to come with me, come on. And so we ran our errands, and when we were finished, Alex looked at me, and he goes, "Uh, Daddy, can we go to the dog store now? I was like, dog store? What are you talking about? He said, you know, the dog store, where we went last time. And I don't have the best memory in the world, but I had no idea what he was talking about. I don't know if he's talking about like PetSmart, which we don't have pets and we had never been to PetSmart together, but I thought maybe he's talking about that or maybe just a hot dog stand because that's his favorite food. He eats hot dogs more than anything else. I wasn't sure exactly what he was talking about. I was like, buddy, dog store, what are you talking about? He said, you know where we went last time, where I got to pet the dog. I was like, I don't know what you're talking about. And he was getting frustrated that I was understanding what he was saying and I was kind of getting frustrated. And so he said, you know where you bought your pants. And he pointed to the blue jeans I was wearing, my jeans. And I thought, dog store, blue jeans, and then it clicked. He was talking about Old Navy. Now, you might be thinking, Old Navy, how is that the dog store? Well, if you've ever been in an Old Navy, you know, right up front, they always have mannequins, and one mannequin they have is that of a dog. My friend Fido here. I always have a dog. Now, I don't know if you call that a mannequin or a dog again. I'm not sure what the proper term is exactly. But Alex likes to pet this dog every time we go to Old Navy. So that's where he wanted to go. And so I was like, oh, okay, yeah, sure. Yeah, we can stop by Old Navy if you want to. And he's like, yeah, I want to. So we went there, and he got to pet Fido. And after we were finished, I said, now, buddy, you know that's not a real dog, right? And he goes... Yeah, but Daddy, we can still pretend like I was just an idiot or something. And I was telling a friend of mine that story, and he said, You know, there's some clips of kids uh, online where they mistake mannequins for real people or real kids. These are human mannequins. And so I found some of them. I want to share them with you this morning. Take a look at these clips. I love those clips, I really do, and I love them because they're funny, but I also like them because they illustrate a pretty deep biblical truth. I'm not sure if you noticed, but all those clips, what are the kids doing? They weren't just like waving at mannequins or touching them, they were holding their hands or hugging them or kissing them, whatever, because those clips illustrate something that I think the Bible teaches repeatedly, and it's this. God has woven into the fabric of our DNA the need for human connection. The Bible teaches in Ecclesiastes 4, verses 9 through 10, two people are better off than one, for they can help each other succeed. If one person falls, the other can reach out and help. But someone who falls alone is in real trouble. One translation says, pity the man who has no one to help him up. In other words, the Bible teaches everyone needs someone. We were not created to do life alone. God created us to do life together. 
He has woven within the fabric of our DNA the need for human connection. And that's why it's important for us every now and then to stop and recognize who created relationships and why he created them. Because God created relationships for our good. But here's the thing. Like so many other things in life, we often allow Satan to hijack what God intended for our good. Satan likes to twist and distort God's design for things like marriage, family, friendship, even the church. And so that what was intended for our good ends up leaving us feeling empty or unsatisfied, disappointed, drained, frustrated, even depressed. And that was definitely the case for a young king in the Old Testament named David and his wife, Michael. Their story is found in 2 Samuel chapter 6, and that's where we're going to study today. And their story shows us what happens when we allow Satan to hijack what God intended for good, when we allow Satan to hijack relationships. Now, I'm going to talk about all relationships today, even though the example we're going to look at from Scripture is about a married couple, and there's definitely a practical application for marriage today. I also understand in a room like this, there's all different types of people, and I think there's going to be application for all of us, whether you're married or not, because I know in an audience like this one, or those watching at one of our campuses, there are people here listening to me who are married, and then there are some in the room today that are engaged, there are some who are just dating, there are some who are single and ready to mingle, there are some of you who've been divorced, some of you have lost a spouse, some of you really, really, really wish you were married. And others, if you never, ever, ever want to get married, and that's okay, because I think there's going to be practical application for all of us. This passage we're going to read is about a married couple, but the message isn't just for married people. Now, Alice and I were online the other day looking at a new bedspread uh, for our new house, and we came across this bedspread if you want to take a look at it. You can buy this bedspread online if you find it. Now, for those of you who are married, you know what this is all about, right? The men in the room can give me a loud amen. You know it's true. This bedspread, just for married people. This sermon, it's not. I think there's going to be practical application for any relationship you might be in. And in 2 Samuel chapter 6, where we're going to study today, what we discover is David has just become king of Israel. He's the newly appointed king of Israel. And this is the same David who defeated the giant Goliath. We've all heard that story. And this is the same David who's known throughout Scripture for being a man after God's own heart. Now, David has just become king in 2 Samuel Samuel chapter 6, and the former king is this guy named Saul. Now, Saul was not a great guy. He started off okay, and he started off being an all right king, but over time, he took his eyes off God, focused more on himself, and he ended up being a pretty bad king, and he took Israel down a path God never wanted them to go. And towards the end of Saul's reign, an event took place that was pretty embarrassing. The Ark of the Covenant was stolen, was taken from Israel by their enemies, the Philistines. Now, the Ark of the Covenant, I've got a picture of it up on the screen. This is what we believe it looks like. This was a gift from God to the people of Israel, and this represented God's presence among the people and His protection over the people. So just imagine how embarrassing this was for it to be taken. See, it was stolen by the enemies of Israel, and then after a while, Indiana Jones came along, and he rescued it and brought it to Washington, D.C. There's a picture of him doing that. See, I've got historical evidence that this happened. No, I'm kidding. Not really. i got to bring this up, because anytime I mention the Ark of the Covenant in a sermon, automatically half my audience is thinking, Indiana Jones. So I had to go ahead and get it out before you guys went there. Uh, but in all seriousness, the Ark of the Covenant was captured by the Philistines, and they had possession of it for years. And again, just think about how embarrassing this was. This was a gift from God that represented His presence, 
His protection. And the Israelites, they're claiming to worship the one true God. They're claiming all other gods that people worship are false. They're fake. They're phonies. They're not real. They're just statues made by men. We're worshiping the one true God. We're worshiping the real God. We're worshiping the creator of all things. And he's given us this ark as a symbol of his protection and presence among us. And our enemies were able to steal it? How embarrassing this would have been. But you know, this happened not because God wasn't with his people, not because God wasn't protecting his people. This happened because God gives us free will. And God let Israel go down the path they chose to take. And so God allowed for them to not only be defeated, but for the ark to be taken. But now David is king. And David's a man after God's own heart. And David wants to put Israel back on the right track. David wants for this void, this God-like void that's existed among Israel to be filled. He wants to teach the people how to pursue God again, how to seek God's presence. So God is with David, and David has several victories over the Philistines. And David makes it his goal to bring the ark back to Jerusalem, the capital city of Israel, where it belonged. And so David wanted to do this for several reasons. One, he wanted to obey God. The ark was supposed to be the center of their worship. And if the center of their worship took place, in the city of Jerusalem, that's where the ark needed to be. So he wanted to obey God and bring the ark back. But not only that, David also wanted this symbol of God's presence and protection to be near him. David's going to be living in the city of Jerusalem. And so he wants God's presence with him. He wants God's protection. But also David realizes what a moment this will be for the nation of Israel for the ark to return. Because by the ark being in the capital city, it's showing the world that yes, there is a king of Israel, but the king of kings is the one who's really reigning. The king of kings is the real leader of Israel. He wants this ark to come back. So David organizes a team of priests and of soldiers to escort the ark, to transport the ark back to the city of Jerusalem. And the first time around, this doesn't go real well. They try to bring the ark back to Jerusalem and they didn't listen to God, they didn't follow God's instructions. And so a man ends up dying because of it. His name is Uzzah. Some people pronounce it Uzzah. Either way, I don't really care. I think it's a cool name. That's why I bring it up. It has nothing to do with my sermon. I think it's a cool name. If you're thinking about uh, baby names, you know, for a little boy, Uzzah or Uzzah. Call him Uzz for short, Uz for short, whatever, you know. It's a great name. He won't get made fun of in school, I promise. But uh, anyway, they didn't follow God's instructions. A man ends up dying because of it. The second time around, they do it right. They listen to God. They transport the ark the way God told them to and the ark makes it back to Jerusalem and in 2nd Samuel 6 verse 12 it tells us that David is rejoicing as the ark comes back to the city of God the city of Jerusalem I love how the New Living Translation translates verse 12 of chapter 6 it says so David brought the ark of God to the city of David that's Jerusalem with a great celebration David is pumped David is excited. This was a huge deal because God's favor was once again upon the nation of Israel. The nation is turning back to God. The people are welcoming God's presence in a way like they hadn't for decades. God is once again at the center of the nation's identity and leadership. So what does David do when he sees the ark back in Jerusalem? David worships. He breaks out in worship. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been so excited about what God has done or is doing in your life that you can't help but worship? Just break out in worship. I've been there. And guys, honestly, I believe that's what should happen every single time the church meets. 
Because when we come together and we're reminded about who our God is and what He's doing for us, what He has done for us and His plans for us in the future, when we hear about our God and we commune around the Lord's table and we commune with our Savior Jesus Christ and we remember everything He did for us and we get to hear God's Word proclaimed and we're surrounded by our Christian brothers and sisters, how can we not worship? Worship should just naturally flow from us. We should break out and worship. And yet sometimes in the American church, it's like, Worship is forced, like we've got to beg people to worship. And I think that's kind of sad. But David, you don't have to beg him to worship in this passage. He just breaks out in worship. And I think David in this moment probably worshiped God like he never had before. Look and see what David does, starting at verse 14 of chapter 6. And it says, David, wearing a linen ephod, danced before the Lord with all of his might, while he and the entire house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouts and with the sound of trumpets. Now David worshipped, and when he worshipped, he didn't just sing, he didn't just shout, he didn't just clap. The Bible says David danced, and he danced before the Lord with all of his might. Now I'm sure for some people watching, this was an odd scene, because kings in this day and age, they typically didn't dance in public, especially not in a worship setting. So I'm sure some people probably at first were scratching their heads saying, what's going on? Because this wasn't typical. It's kind of like the video I saw the other day of a guy in a gym who, well, let's just say he exercised in a way that isn't typical of most gyms. Take a look at this video clip. I just love after doing all that, he just goes back to jogging again like it's no big deal. You know, I would fall flat on my face if I try that. I would break something. I might die if I try that. But I've never seen that happen in a gym. I've been in a lot of gyms. I've never seen anybody run on a treadmill like that. That's a little odd. You know, I'd be like, what's up with that guy? And I'm sure some people, when David started to dance, like, what's the king doing? Kings don't act like this. There's a reason why David danced the way he danced. Look back with me in verse 14. It says, David wearing a linen ephod. And what he wears in this moment, I think gives us one of the reasons why he danced like he did. David wearing a linen ephod danced before the Lord with all of his might. See, what does David do in this moment? He takes off his royal robes, his royal garments, and he strips down to a linen ephod. Now, a linen ephod was kind of this one-piece, very thin, short-sleeved garment that priests would wear. And I mean common priests, not chief priests or high priests, but just a common priest serving in the daily service of the Lord. That's what they would wear. It was kind of this loose-fitting, thin, like I said, short-sleeved, one-piece garment. And David strips down to this garment, and he starts to worship. It's as if David here is saying in this moment, Before the king of kings, there are no kings. I'm just a common servant of God. I mean, how cool would that have been? David in this moment was like, I don't care about image management. I don't care what anybody thinks of me. I don't have to put on a show and let everybody know I'm the king. I'm just a servant like everybody else of the most high God. 
And so he strips down to an outfit that just a common priest would wear, and then he starts to dance. Now, dancing was typical in Hebrew worship. I know in some churches they have anti-dancing policies, but dancing was typical in Hebrew worship. But typically it was women who danced, sometimes slaves or people of lower class, children, you know, would dance. And so basically what's going on here is that probably dancing breaks out. This is an impromptu worship service as the ark is returned to Jerusalem and everybody is shouting and celebrating and singing and so people start to dance. That's what certain individuals did in worship. And David, it doesn't matter that he's king. You know, chief priest and all those, you know, they, they wouldn't dance like this. A king, or they wouldn't dance like this. David didn't care. David sees this great worship serving going on and for the first time David lets go. And David just says, I'm going to worship God with all of my mind. I'm not going to let anything hold me back. I'm not going to worry what anybody thinks of me. I don't care who's staring at me. All I care is that I'm living for an audience of one in this moment and I'm going to worship like I've never worshipped before. And so David just acts like a common priest, a common servant, a common person worshipping the Most High God. Because in the presence of God, worship is all about Him and it doesn't matter what anyone else thinks of us. And honestly, there are no kings before the king of kings. And can you imagine witnessing this moment, seeing this place out? I'm sure everybody was awestruck. Everybody was kind of wowed by this. And what an example David is, shedding, is showing the people. And so people start to worship. And the text says that there were loud trumpets being played. And people started to shout out and scream. Israel worships all the more as they see David worship in this manner. But you know, at every party, there's always a party pooper. And at this moment, the party pooper was David's wife, Michael. Look at how Michael reacts. Pick back up with me in chapter 6 of 2 Samuel at verse 16. It says, As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Jerusalem, Michael, daughter of Saul, now make a note here, David married the daughter of his predecessor, of the former king, Saul. So Michael, daughter of Saul, watched from a window... And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. Now this is interesting. David is humbly, passionately worshiping God. And this is not only one of the most significant moments in the early reign of David as king, this is also a turning point in the spiritual history of Israel. This was a big deal. And the Bible says the whole nation came out to witness the ark returning. And where's Michael, David's wife? She's watching from a distance. She's watching from a window. And she's mad that David is acting like this. The Bible says... She despised David, her husband, in her heart. Obviously, husband and wife are not on the same page. And so David goes home later on that day, probably to share with all of his servants, everybody, about what had happened. I mean, David's on this spiritual high, and Michael's still at home. And let's see what happens when David goes home that afternoon. Verse 20 says... When David returned home to bless his household, see, he's still on this spiritual high. He comes home to share everything that he'd experienced and to bless his household. When David returned home to bless his household, Michael, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, 
how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today. Can you hear the sarcasm in her voice? How the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, disrobing in the sight of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. I love that language right there. David said to Michael, it was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father. Ooh, that's a low blow. That's not a way to win points with your wife, okay? It was before the Lord who chose me rather than your daddy or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people, Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this, and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honor. And then there's an interesting line in verse 23. And Michael, daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. Now, if this is your first time meeting David and Michael, you might think that they were in a loveless marriage. You know, a lot of marriages in this day and age were prearranged, especially royal marriages. So you might think, you know, these are two people living on the same roof, but they don't really love one another. It's a marriage of convenience. It's a marriage. It's a loveless marriage. But you know, that's not the case at all. When you read back over the history of David and Michael's relationship, what you discover is they very much did love one another. They supported one another at times. They were there for one another. They fought for, for one another. I mean, they definitely loved one another. And they proved their love over and over again. But what happened on this day changed everything. To the point that their relationship was never the same again. I mean, notice how this passage or this section within chapter 6 ends. I try to point, I try to make an emphasis of it, verse 23, and Michael, daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. Now, when I first started to study this passage years ago, I just assumed that the reason why Michael was barren, why she didn't have any children to the day of her death, was because God cursed her. That's what I assume. You know, she went against a man after God's own heart. David had this special relationship with God, and so she confronted David, and she was in the wrong, and so God cursed her. That's what I assumed. But you know, I think I may have assumed wrong. Because the Bible doesn't say that. And one thing you need to know about me, you guys, I know I'm new here, so you're still learning me. I try to speak where the Bible speaks, and I'm silent where the Bible is silent. And the Bible doesn't say that. The Bible doesn't say that God cursed her. And normally when God does curse somebody, the Bible, you know, tells us that. The Bible doesn't say that. So I don't think we can say that God cursed her. But yet, this passage seems to indicate that her not having children is a result of the confrontation that her and David have, the argument that her and David has. So what's going on here? Let's put two and two together. Because of this argument, is it possible that David and Michael never slept together again? See, we have no indication after this point in Scripture, this point in biblical history, that David and Michael ever reconciled. David goes on, he has other wives, and he has other children, other wives. But we have no indication that David and Michael ever reconciled. It's as if from here on out, David and Michael are still living under the same roof. But that's about it. James E. Smith, who, is, who taught Old Testament for years at Florida Christian College, probably one of the most well-known Old Testament scholars within Restoration Movement circles, writes this in his commentary on 2 Samuel. He writes, The placement of this verse at this point suggests that Michael's condition was connected to the permanent estrangement between David and Michael. 
Now, before we go any further, it is important to understand that God is not endorsing this kind of behavior. You biblical students know that there are two types of narrative texts. There are prescriptive narrative texts, and there are descriptive narrative texts. And in a prescriptive text, God is saying, this is the way the world should be, and so he gives it to us as instruction. But then in a descriptive text, what God is saying is, this is how the world actually is, and it needs to change. And what we just read here is a descriptive text. God gives us this because this is not the way that relationships are supposed to turn out. God gives us this as a warning. Make sure you don't make the same mistakes that David and Michael made. And so I think there's practical application for all of us. And so what I want to do is I want to point out some warning signs that lead to problems within, within relationships if you're not watching for them. And so let me give you some warning signs that I see from this passage. And the first warning sign is this. Relationships struggle when two people are headed in different spiritual directions. Let me say that again. Relationships struggle when two people are headed in different spiritual directions. See, in our passage, David and Michael obviously, are on two different pages when it comes to God. David is known for being a man after God's own heart. Now, David wasn't perfect. He made a lot of mistakes. But still, he was a man after God's own heart. He sought God all the days of his life. Michael, however, when we study her, she seems to be all about Michael. It's not that she doesn't believe in God. It's not that she rejects the existence of God. It's just that her relationship with God is a lot more superficial. It's a lot more surface level. Something she does more out of tradition or ritual than anything else. And that's why when you read about Michael in our passage, 2 Samuel 6, where is she when all of Israel is celebrating God and praising God and worshiping Him? Where's Michael? She's watching from a distance. She's watching from a window. She's not participating in this great celebration of God that everybody else is participating in. Quick side note, having grown up in church my entire life and being, I've been in preaching ministry for the past 15 years, let me just make this simple observation. Critical people are rarely participants in worship. Critical people are typically spectators of worship. Critical people, and you guys know who I'm talking about. I'm not talking talking about people who give constructive criticism. Critical people are rarely participants in worship. Critical people are typically spectators of worship. And that's why you've probably heard it said before, those who are seen dancing are thought to be insane because, because they cannot hear the music. You see, it's almost impossible to worship God. It's almost impossible to worship God when you come together and you are authentically and genuinely giving your heart to Him. It's impossible to come together and worship God and then walk out in the lobby and start to complain about something that the church is doing to carry out the mission of God when you're in the right heart and the right mindset. Those who are seen dancing are thought to be insane by those who cannot hear the music. And that's why the Bible teaches in 2 Corinthians 6 verse 14 not to be unequally yoked with people who don't have the same spiritual goals with you. Now notice what I didn't say. I didn't say that relationships struggle when two people aren't on the same spiritual level. That's not true because none of us are on the same spiritual level. We're all at different points in our spiritual journey. I didn't say relationships struggle when two people are not on the same spiritual level. What I said was relationships struggle when two people are going in different spiritual directions. Because the key to having a healthy relationship is making sure that you have the same spiritual goals. You don't have to be at the same level, but you've got to have the same spiritual goals in mind. 
And that's why I often tell young people, single people, people who are dating, don't date, don't flirt, don't marry someone who's going in a different spiritual direction than you. Don't settle for someone who's just a nominal Christian, who's just a Christian by name only, simply because you're lonely. Don't settle for someone just because society tells you you need to be married, and you're an incomplete person until you get married, because the Bible doesn't teach that. I have a friend, a a buddy who's in his uh, early 20s, and he wants to be married. He desperately wants to be married, but he wants to make sure he marries somebody who's a follower of Jesus. And so in the church he attends, sometimes people will come to him, and they'll say, hey, we got a girl that you need to meet, or they want to try to fix him up with somebody. And the first question he always asks is, is she a follower of Jesus? And there are times that people in his church will say, "Uh, well, we don't know. We think she goes to church somewhere, and they don't know. And my buddy, his first question always is, is she a follower of Jesus? I respect him for that because he doesn't want to be unequally yoked with somebody. Because the Bible teaches in God's eyes, holiness is the goal of every relationship. Now, that's not what our culture teaches. Our culture teaches that happiness is the goal. But the Bible teaches that holiness is the goal of every relationship. Because we need to be with people who are going to help us be better followers of Jesus. The Bible teaches that relationships struggle when there are conflicting spiritual goals. Guys, it's better to have an empty bed and a full heart than a full heart and an empty bed. Now, I need to say something before I go any further. Some of you right now may be in marriages. You may be married to somebody who's going in a different spiritual direction than you. The Bible does not teach, and I am not teaching this morning, that you should leave your spouse or divorce your spouse or abandon your spouse. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that if you already are married to somebody who's going in a different spiritual direction than you, you remain faithful to them. You be faithful to them and you show them who God is and you show them the life that God wants them to live and maybe you can help them turn around, turn and follow the path that God wants them to follow. Maybe because of you, a lie can go off. You can help them experience the life that God wants them to live. The Bible doesn't say if you're married to somebody and they're going a different spiritual direction that you should just leave them. And some of you in the room may be here by yourself because your spouse is going a different spiritual direction than you. The Bible doesn't say leave them. It says be faithful to them. And hopefully you can be the open door in their lives that allows them to come and see who God is. But you know, this idea of making sure, that, making sure that you're going the same spiritual direction as someone else is not just true for marriage, it's true for really any friendship. It's true for f- friendship in general. See, the people we hang out with will shape us. It's not that we don't talk or hang out with people who are going a different spiritual direction than us. We are to witness to them. We are to love them as Christ's love does. But the friends who have the most influence on you should be people who can hold you spiritually accountable. People who are going to help you become better followers of Jesus. The second warning sign that I think we can pull from this passage is this relationship struggle when we are weighed down by our past. I want you to notice how on three different occasions in just a few verses that we read, Michael is referred to as a daughter of Saul. Now that's kind of significant because in this day and age, men were identified by who their father was, you know, the son of so-and-so. Women were not. Women were identified by their husband. Now whether you like that or not, it doesn't really matter. That's how it was in this day and age. Women were identified by who their husband was. And yet three different times in these few verses that we read, Michael is referred to not as the wife of David, But as the daughter of Saul, it's as if the Bible is telling us that Michael's identity is found more in her past as Saul's daughter 
than in her presence as David's wife. See, Michael, she had never seen her daddy disrobe like David disrobed and dance before the Lord. She had never seen her daddy act like that. But what she forgot was that her daddy wasn't on the same page as God. Her daddy led Israel down a path that God never wanted the nation to go down. Her daddy wasn't right with God. But that's what she was comfortable with. That's what she was used to. And she was unaware of how her toxic past was infiltrating her future. And guys, the same is true for us. If you come from an unhealthy family environment, those tendencies that you're not aware of that are unhealthy, they will transfer into your present relationships. And so let me ask, are your present relationships shaped more by your past or by the current relationship you have with your Heavenly Father. See, we have a choice to make. We can either transfer toxic, toxic emotions from the past into our present, or we can invite God to transform those emotions and make something good out of them. And then that leads us to the third warning sign, and the last warning sign I think we can pull from this passage, and it's this. Relationships struggle when one person thinks they're less sinful than the other. Notice how Michael is quick to judge David. She's quick to pounce on him as soon as he gets home. And again, David's on this spiritual high, and she's just ready to let into him. And immediately she does. And David tries to explain why he did what he did. She doesn't want to hear it. Her mind is made up. She's right. David is wrong. She feels justified in her position, and she's not going to listen to David. She feels like she's better than him. And then David's response, it's not the most healthy response either. Now, David's a man after God's own heart, but remember what David said. David goes, well, you know, God didn't want your daddy to be king anymore. He chose me over your daddy, and nobody in your daddy's family was good enough to be king. He, that's why he had to come to me. You know, that's not the way to win points with your wife. I mean, you don't criticize her dad. And yet, that's what David did. So it probably wasn't the best response, but what's David here saying? My mind's made up. I'm right. You're wrong. Not going to change. David feels like he's justified, he's better than Michael. Guys, let me let you in on a little spiritual truth. One of the biggest obstacles to healthy relationships, not the differences between people, but it's what we all have in common, and that's sin. See, relationships struggle when one person thinks that he or she is less sinful than the other. Sin has the ability to make us feel really insecure it causes, it causes us to believe that we need the upper hand in every friendship, every relationship, that we need to keep score, we need to punish the other person when they do wrong to us. And unfortunately, what sin does is convince us that what, what we've done to other people is not near as bad as what they've done to us. And that's why Jesus teaches in Matthew 7, verse 12, do to others what you would like them to do to you. Now, based on that one command, we don't need to read another book on marriage. Based on that one command, we don't need to hear another sermon on friendship. All we need to do is do what Jesus told us to do. And our relationships cannot help but get better if we do just that. Because healthy relationships are grounded in humility and grace. That's why Paul writes in Ephesians 4 verse 2, Always be humble and gentle, be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Let me just see by a show of hands here and on all of our campuses. How many of you guys watched the Super Bowl last Sunday evening? Let me see. Okay, almost all of you. I figured as much. How many, have any Eagles fans in the room? Can I hear you? 
Okay, I said, hear you. You raised your hand. You're not that diehard then, okay? Um, I'm not an Eagles fan, really not a Patriots fan either. I didn't care who won, honestly. But it was an exciting game. It was a fun game. Anybody like the halftime show better than, better than like the football game? Anybody? Okay, a few. All right. I figured there'd be some. There's always some. But no, I thought it was a pretty exciting game. It went down to the very end. Uh, but something that I noticed about uh, last Sunday's game the place kickers, the kickers on both teams, they missed very makeable field goals. I don't know if you noticed that. And I think the kickers on both teams missed an extra point after a touchdown as well. And I remember it hit me like, what's going on? You know, these guys are paid way too much money to miss field goals and extra points like that. And I got online the next day and I was reading articles and people were really giving the kickers a hard time. Like, what's happened to kickers in the NFL and especially in the Super Bowl? Because you remember a couple years ago, a kicker for the, for, uh, for the Panthers, you know, missed a field goal. It was kind of significant. And so they were like, what has happened? What's going on? And they were really criticizing sizing kickers, giving them a hard time, saying they get paid way too much money to miss those and whatever else. And as I'm reading these articles, it hit me. I wonder if any of these guys writing, <laughs> writing these articles, writing on these blogs, I wonder if any of them have ever tried to kick a field goal. I wonder if any of them have ever even made one. And here I was mad. And I'm thinking, hey, yeah, they get paid way too much money to miss those. And yet I've never attempted a field goal in my life. And it's funny how we expect perfection from people, and yet we're not sure if we can even do the same thing. I mean, these guys, I know they get paid a lot of money. I get it. But this is the Super Bowl. Millions of eyes are on them. You know, this is the biggest stage in football, and they're not machines. They're going to make mistakes. But fan bases, they expect perfection. And I get that. I'm a UK basketball fan. I'm not sure if you're aware of that. I'm sure if I've shared that with you or not. But I'm a Kentucky basketball fan. And right now, we're going through some rough times. This season is not turning out the way that I thought it would. Maybe they can still get it together. But it's rough right now if you're a UK basketball fan. And I expect perfection from my team. And then sometimes I sit back and I think, you know, these are 18 and 19 kids out there. They're not machines. They're not perfect. They're going to make mistakes. And guys, I am so glad that my wife, Allison, doesn't expect perfection from me because she's not going to get it. And I'm so glad that I have godly friends who don't expect perfection from me because they're not going to get it. I like those field goal kickers. I'm going to miss the mark. And I'm going to miss the mark over and over again. Now, I'm going to try to be the best husband I can be. I'm going to try to be the best father I can be. I'm going to try to be the best friend I can be. But guys, I'm not perfect. And I'm going to miss the mark. And I'm so glad that Allison is full of grace. And I want to show her the same. So here's how I want to enter every relationship. Look at this picture on the screen. See, I want to just tilt the crossbars in your direction. That's what I think it takes to have a healthy relationship. Because relationships are grounded in grace. I want to enter every relationship knowing that I'm, with them knowing that I'm going to tilt the crossbars their way and I hope that they will do the same for me. Because healthy relationships are grounded in grace. They're full of patience and love and understanding and kindness. And that's exactly what God has done for us. And that's why I know I can show the same to other people that I encounter, especially to the people I love. Because if God can forgive someone like me, I know me. You don't know me, but I know me. And I know how many times I've disappointed God. I know how many times that I've rebelled against Him. I know how many times I've rejected Him. I know how I've disappointed God. 
And if God can continue to show me grace, can continue to love me, be kind to me, then I can do the same for others. He's teaching me how to, how to have healthy relationships by being in relationship with Him. See, David and Michael, they never reconciled. And I think this passage is warning us, don't make the same mistakes they made. Don't let Satan hijack what God intended to be so good. Would you bow with me in prayer? Father, I thank you so much for this time we've had to meet together as your people and, Father, to study your word. Father, we just pray that we can learn from this example, David and Michael, even though it's not a great example. Their story does not end well. But, Father, you've given us this passage as a warning, uh, full of warning signs to make sure that we don't allow Satan to hijack what you intended to be so good. Father, may we turn our relationships over to you. May we learn from our relationship with you so that we can be the people you created us to be. It's in the name of Jesus I pray. Amen.